Good morning. There we go. That's live. All right. So we get the joy, the intimidating joy of preaching on Trinitarian heresies. And I say that because the Trinity is something that's incredibly important to the nature and character of God because it describes how God operates. But it's also something that's very difficult for us to understand. So it's also very difficult to explain without dipping into a heresy myself. So we're going to do our best this morning to describe the nature and character of God while also recognizing that we are finite humans and as such, we won't be able to understand the nature and character of God fully this side of heaven. So let's take a second before we dive into the teaching this morning and go ahead and pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have revealed to us about who you are and how you operate. And I pray that this morning, Ken and I would be able to clearly communicate the truth about how you operate and clearly explain some of the lies that have uh, been told about how you operate. And I pray that it would be your words and not ours this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so we are going to talk about two different heresies this morning around the Trinity and around how the nature and character of God in the Trinity works. I'm going to be starting out with modalism, and then Ken is going to go into pantheism once we've gone through the first Trinity, or through the first heresy. (laughs) Next slide. So just as a little bit of a recap and a reminder of sort of where we've already been in this sermon series on heresies, a heresy we're defining as a formal denial of a core doctrine. Is this battery going out? Okay. A formal denial of a core doctrine or dogma of the Christian faith. And as Chris explained a few weeks ago, typically where heresies come in is when we're actually attempting to make something about the character of God more palatable or easier to understand. Because we're finite creatures who can't really understand an eternal and infinite God this side of heaven. So we'll see this again in, especially in modalism this morning, that it's kind of an attempt to make the Trinity easier to understand that misses the mark completely. And then also, as a little bit of a precursor and a reminder of what the Trinity is before we start talking about what it is not, so in the City Church Statement of Faith, we say there is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, who is infinitely perfect, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, he expounds on this a little bit more and says that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Next slide. Oh, I have two people doing slides. Ha ha. <laughs> Am I actually on the next slide? Okay. Okay, fine. So we're going to talk through modalism <laughs> really quick. So as we look at sort of the backstory of this heresy, it started with a gentleman named Sibelius and the Monarchians. And what they were wanting to do is they really were concerned for the divine monarchy. So they wanted to um, emphasize the absolute unity and indivisibility of God, which is a good thing, wanting to emphasize how God is um, united and how God is one being is a good part of the Trinity. But where they kind of went a bit too far is when they said that God isn't three distinct persons, but he is one who appears to people in different modes, modalism, at different times. 
So God is a sole deity, and rather than having three distinct persons in that deity, he expresses and reveals himself in these different modes or offices at different times. So if you think of like one of the, the modalistic explanations in the Trinity would be the Trinity is like water. It is always water, but it expresses itself in three different states, gas, liquid, and solid. So that's kind of what the modalistic trend and explanation of how God works would be. And interestingly enough, a couple of different places in Scripture that when taken out of the context of the overarching theme of Scripture where they pulled this from was actually John 10, 30, where, God, uh, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and then also John 14, 9, where Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So what they're doing here is saying God is one, he is unified, and just expresses himself in different modes at different times. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different faces, different modes of the same one God, unified deity. So the Father continually, God the Father is God continually revealed in the works of creation, God the Son is God revealed in human flesh, and then God the Spirit is God revealed in the church. And interestingly enough, they also then went through and said that at the end, redemption, part of redemption, is God putting away these three masks and then manifesting himself as a single-mode person. So I thought it was just interesting how they brought in the redemption aspect and looking at at the end, God will, will take away these three modes, these three masks that he presents himself as, and then end up just presenting himself as one single mode. So then the rebuttal to that, pretty much the easiest place in scripture to rebut this is Jesus' baptism. Because here, we see each of the three persons of the Trinity at the same time. And if God is one God who reveals himself in three different modes. It's kind of hard to be expressing all three modes at the same time and wearing all three masks at the same time. So in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." So here we see each of the three distinct parts of the Trinity operating at the same time and being present at the same time. Next. But, because I love the Old Testament and I don't want to just go from the New Testament, we also see God referring to himself in the three different parts of the Godhead present at creation. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we know from John that um, Jesus, so God the Son, was an active part of creation. So here we see each of the different parts of the Trinity, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, and then God the Father and God the Son, both involved in the actual creation part. And then as you go on a little bit later in Genesis, God is talking about himself in plurality. And this happens throughout the Old Testament. God just doesn't say, I, God. He says, us, God. So then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you see God himself referring to himself 
in plurality. Such a weird blurring of pronouns and single and multiple. We can't understand it, but we know that this is how God works. And I don't want to just leave you with those two isolated, out-of-context scripture passages to say, this is how the Trinity works. Because this is something that we see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. The word Trinity is never actually explicitly stated in the Bible, but we can see the themes of the three and one God multiple times throughout the Bible. So as we go into the Old Testament first, just want to pull out a couple of other instances where God was speaking about himself in plurality. So Genesis 3:22, the fall, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Genesis, the Tower of Babel, 11:7, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. During Isaiah's commission in Isaiah 6:8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Psalm, 11, Psalm 110, 1. So here we see um, two different people being called Lord in a deific sense. So this is David writing about two different parts of the Godhead, two different parts of the Trinity, and ascribing both of them as Lord. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool couple of different ways throughout the, the whole body of the Old Testament that we see God referred to as a plurality, which seems to undermine sort of the core tenet of modalism. And then also in the New Testament, same thing, we don't really ever see explicitly the word the Trinity, but the New Testament authors are huge fans of including sort of Trinitarian um, references throughout the New Testament. So a couple of different places. One is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then again in 1 Corinthians 12, when we're talking about the spiritual gifts, Paul throws in a little bit of a Trinitarian reference here, too. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So there we see God the Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. So this tends to be a reference to Jesus. So God the man. Um, and, there, uh, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God. So this tends to be a reference to God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. So here we see each of the three different persons of the Trinity and of the Godhead ascribed in one reference that is referring back to God. Next slide. And then this continues throughout the rest of the New Testament. So in Ephesians, when we're talking about unity in the church, there's one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So here, as we're talking about the one God, there's also a reference to each of the different parts of the Trinity here. And as we're talking about the one church being unified, he talks through this through each of the different parts of the Trinity. So one spirit, one Lord referring to Jesus, and then one God and Father. So God the Father there. And then in Jude 20 through 21, in this call to persevere to Jude, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, God the Father, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
So those are sort of some of the references throughout the Old Testament and then again in the New Testament, and there are more. This is just a sampling of what is in the Bible referring to the Trinity. Uh, just a sampling of showing how there are these three distinct persons. It's not different modes, different masks that God is putting on, but there are three distinct persons that operate in three different ways, but yet are still all unified and part of the one God, which is very difficult to explain, which is why it's so easy to have a heresy surrounding the nature and character of God as reflected in the Trinity. And so next we are going to talk about yet another one of those heresies and another misunderstanding of the way that God works through the Trinity with pantheism. Hello, hello. Make me light. Thanks. All right, so pantheism. Hi, how is everybody? I feel like I have to say hello. Also, thank, thank you for that, that, that fake smile. That was great. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, does he do that to you a lot, Debbie? Yeah, a little bit? She doesn't want to admit it. All right, so pantheism in short uh, is actually kind of the far extreme from modalism. Um, but pantheism, as I was looking into, um, pantheism as a Trinitarian heresy, uh, I uncovered a bunch, of, a bunch of other stuff. So pantheism covers uh, both the Trinity as well as um, some other lines of theological philosophy. So we're going to kind of hit both. Um, unlike Jake, I'm a believer in definitions, as definitions. I'm also a believer in definitions for the sake of definitions, Jake, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother conversation. Uh, unfortunately, with pantheism, there's a lot of different definitions because there's a lot of pantheist uh, schools of thought that have existed historically. Uh, so just kind of running down some highlights. Uh, reality is identical to divinity, and therefore all things are divine, right? Uh, the, the summation of all existence is the fullness of the divine, my reality is an expression of divine reality. Uh, some pantheist traditions focus primarily on the universe and seeking unity or harmony, particularly in Eastern thought. Uh, and in a Christian context, pantheism emphasizes the infinity of God or the infinity of um, the universe. So some interesting things that all of, these, all of these thought models have in common is that Sort of everything, God, God and creation are sort of somehow combined and intertwined, and one, one, one is the other, and the other is one, right? Clear as mud. Um, fortunately, the Catholic Church weighed in on pantheism and defines it thusly, the belief that there exists no supreme, all-wise, all-provident divine being distinct from the universe, and God is identical with the nature of things and is, therefore, subject to changes. In effect, God is produced in man and in the world, and all things are God and have the very substance of God, and God is one and the same thing with the world, and therefore spirit with matter, necessity with liberty, good with evil, justice with injustice. Woo! That is from the Pope, uh, as referenced in the Syllabus of Errors, which he published in 1864. Uh, the reason there's two dates there is actually he's quoting an earlier document that was written in 1862, that was published in 1862. All right. uh, for those of you not familiar with the Syllabus of Errors, it is a fun read. Uh, it is basically a document, it, well, it's, it's literally a syllabus of errors. It is a listing of wrong schools of thought that the Catholic Church decided needed to be addressed. So it's very literally just a list of, you know, here, here are things that, that are not biblical. Bam, 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 bam. 
It's all it is. Good times. A complete and unabridged history of pantheism. That is irony. You can laugh. It is okay. Thank you, Creed. Appreciate that. Uh, in the early informative church, pantheism in some form appeared in Gnostic groups and has been considered a her heresy by the Roman Catholic Church since at least the 1600s. I was actually going to look up uh, when, the when the Roman Catholic Church actually first weighed in. I did not do it, but I suspect it's earlier than, than the 1600s. Uh, in the 9th and 12th centuries, European theologians experimented with pantheism to varying degrees, most notably the, the mystics. Um, and there is kind of a, a, a history of theological philosophy that kind of works its way through from the early church, from Gnosticism on through. Um, you actually, you kind of go through pantheism and then you get to deism and, and rationalism. Uh, sort of some of these other things that we've been talking about uh, work in. So mysticism is one, one stop along the way. Uh, early 1700s, the first known usage of the word pantheism in English is in 1702. The American founding fathers are likely subscribed to some degree, particularly the deists, guys like, like Jefferson, who believed in a god. Um, so they're deists. They believe in some sort of a, a god-like force, but not necessarily... God as Christians would describe God. Um, in Germany, there was a, a great philosophical debate between a guy named Jacobi, if you're pronouncing him like an Englishman, uh, and Mendelssohn. Uh, and they went back and forth on the relative merits of pantheism uh, and whether pantheism equated uh, theism or deism, i.e. The, the presence of a god or of a, of a life force in some generalized sense, or if it simply equated atheism. Um, partly because of these debates, pantheism actually became kind of a mainstream uh, sort of philosophical, theological mix. Uh, in the 19th century and was subscribed to by notable philosophers and writers. Uh, I've mentioned the, the Americans here, Whitman, Emerson, and Thoreau, uh, all subscribed to some degree of pantheism. Uh, condemned should have actually been deleted. That was, we, we dealt with that earlier. Uh, pantheism was condemned by the Catholic Church. And yes, people were burned at the stake for believing in pantheism. Good times! All right, theological implications of pantheism. If all things are God and God is all things, what does that lead us to? Here's just a couple of examples. We create our own divine reality, right? We are gods because God is in me and I am God and, and he is me and it's great. I like it. There is no true need for a personal God or perhaps even to be saved. Uh, if, God, if all things are God and God is all things, there is no need for a trinity. God is one and only one because he is everything. Right? Uh, gods that are supposed, or things that are supposed to happen do, or need to be led of God, uh, can, can become inconsequential. I think it is partly the philosophical strain of pantheism that uh, has led modern American, even, even a modern, modern American Christianity, to sometimes lean a little bit on, well, if it's, if it's God's will, it'll just sort of happen. Um, sort, of, sort of this concept that, you know, God all things are in God and all things that are happen sort of relate back to God. Uh, and obviously there's, there's a certain amount of truth to that, right? Um, but we lean too far in that direction and all of a sudden, you know, we don't have any personal responsibility and, 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 there, and we lose the interplay between God and creation uh, and, that, and also the interplay between what is holy and what is not holy, right? 
the nature and character of God. Uh, do, 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 do. Also, we would not need to do anything to reflect the divine. The divine is in us and through us. Agreed? Agreed. Right? Um, so one of the things that I, I wanted to point out, and this is true in a lot of, a lot of heresies, obviously, that there are, there are some strains of truth right? in, in, in many of these. God, the divine, is in fact always present, ask Jonah. Right? For those of you who are not Jake, um, Jonah can tell you that there is no place on earth you can go to hide from God. For those of you who are Jake, Jonah is a, uh, a story demonstrating the truth that there is no place you can go to hide from God. Right? Anywhere in the universe, God is, God is present. Right? So there, there's some truth to that. Uh, but not all things are God. Or God, for, uh, okay, I've got to miscopy and copy and paste there or something. Not all things are God or, or pertain to the nature and character of God. There we go. Uh, do, 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 do. God does carry an, imp creation does carry an imprint of the divine, right? So the observation that creation has a relationship to that which is divine is completely true, right? Um, humans specifically created in our image, but we are not God, neither is creation, right? Uh, the intuitive understanding that all things should be in union with the divine also has some merit, right? God created in his image and will redeem to his image. Genesis, Revelation, all point in the same, right? Um, so I, I see this a lot, I think, in, in some of my friends who tend to be atheistic in nature, believing that there is some not necessarily well-defined life force, universal force, um, you know, almost, almost a Star Wars force, but not quite, right? Um, that is in all things and of all things and guiding all things, that there's this, there's this kind of this, this force out there. And there is an intuitive understanding uh, across history and, and across lots of different philosophies that there really ought to be something greater than creation that creation is tied to, the concept of something divine, right? Um, and certainly in the, in the biblical worldview, that is because God created, right? And God created in his image out of an expression of who he is and, and his nature and character. And so, of course, creation has a stamp of the divine, right? And part of the, part of the overarching story uh, of, of biblical history is that, look, we started with creation, and we end with the redemption of creation, that God is bringing, bringing creation back, resurrecting creation back to the divine, right? Back to original intent. Pantheism as relating to the biblical trinity. The doctrine of trinity can be misunderstood as pantheism, i.e. an attempt to combine three distinct God types, modalism, into an all-encompassing God of things. Um, if you do some searching on the internet, the internet of things, uh, do some blog searching, um, where people, you know, people have online debates of uh, theo-philosophical stuff, right? This seems to come up a lot. So people who, particularly people who don't have a Christian background uh, and have not been exposed to the concept of the Trinity will sometimes instinctively understand the Trinity as three separate gods, or, right? And so then we'll say, oh, well, this whole Trinitarian movement or the Trinitarian philosophy uh, or doctrine is really an attempt to 
create one out of these three individual gods. And obviously they're both, both of these viewpoints are not, not entirely biblical, right? Um, so if, if you're kind of the math, the math major type, so God is Father plus Son plus Holy Spirit, but it is also true that God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, right? Both equations are worried. I, I, I'm sorry, Creed, I know that doesn't work mathematically. I, I, no, other, other side, God is infinite. You can't have zero. God is infinite. Empty, well, I guess zero is kind of an infinite. You can add infinity? I think, I think infinity, I mean, zero is an infinite thing, right? Right, and it creates an, an infinity. So now we're back into pantheism. Great! <laughs> Hooray, we've committed heresy! I'm going to go now before the lightning strikes. Uh, okay, so yeah, it's, it's really the intimacy in the Godhead that, that causes this problem, right? Uh, God is within himself complete, and the expressing of that intimacy is of extreme importance to God. We see this in creation, right? It is not good for man to be alone. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because man is created in God's image, and God is not alone. God is intimate within himself, right? Um, in fact, I would say that, 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 that sort of the, the crescendo of creation, creation is kind of a, in some ways a case study of the importance of intimacy and, and, and God expressing his pleasure with being intimate both within himself and then also with creation. Uh, there's this cause. God, God creates creation, and then God creates man, and he brings all of creation in front. There's kind of this, this pause in creation, right, where he brings all that is already created in front of man. He exposes Adam, right, to all of creation. And there's no, there's no suitable partner found, right? There's, there's nothing for, for man, there's nothing for Adam to be intimate with. Right? And so there's this pause in creation, and I think that the reason for that uh, is that God wants to emphasize the importance then when he brings Eve in, and Adam's response is, hey, this is something that is made of the same essence of me. Eve is actually, I mean, this, this is, this is a, a rabbit trail for another conversation, but Eve, Eve is actually probably the crown jewel of creation. Right? So people who, uh, I mentioned this for my wife's sake, uh, so people, people who've been exposed to the idea that, that women are somehow subservient to men in, in Christian theology, right, just pointing back, point back to creation, Eve is the climax of creation, right? Um, and it's really Adam's response, right? Flesh of my flesh, it's more than just a physical thing. This is, this is something that is made of the, of the same essence. This alone of all creation is something that I can be intimate with right, um, on, a, on a physical level, but also on a, on a spiritual, right, spiritual, emotional level as well. And that is the relationship that God has within himself. So part of creation is painting a picture of intimacy. And that's, I, I think, one reason why we have um, the expression of the Trinity is because God wants us to recognize the importance of that intimacy um, within ourselves. We also see it in other portions of scripture, right? Intimacy and marriage, two become one. This is, this is also creationary, right? Uh, intimacy between the bride and church, 
Uh, Paul talks about that as well as marriage, right? Um, for this reason, yada, 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 yada. Oh, this is a great mystery. And oh, yeah, but, 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 I'm, but I'm really talking about the bride of Christ. <laughs> right? Um, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff going on that we don't entirely understand. Right? Um, but that's, that's kind of, I think, the importance of the Trinity. And that is actually my last slide. So do we have any questions? I know that's a lot to try to unpack all at once. Chris looks very sort of bored. Great, I put the pastor to sleep. Excellent. That's good. All right, I will, uh, I will pray, and then Jake is coming up with the, with the elements. Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and meet you. And Father, I ask that um, your message and your words would be what we walk away with today. I ask that you would meet the, the needs, the physical needs, the financial needs, the emotional needs of those present and those associated with our ministry, Father, and help us to be light and life to those around us. In Christ's name, amen. Do you need a...